morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I just want to make a, a brief comment about runner's camp. Um, I was down there periodically throughout the week, um, and I, it, I was so proud of our church. It's uh, those who were down there every day in the 180 degree heat, whatever that was. Um, we have some amazing people. And thank you for those who served. Thank you for those who prayed. I, I was, I just as I left, kind of went back and forth to see all of our people out there with all those kids and all of that truth, maybe more than they'll ever receive in their life. And it could be that many of those children, that was the first time and maybe the only time that they'll hear the gospel. So thank you for um, becoming more outreach oriented. That's kind of where the Lord has been leading us. And I think it's pretty clear by all the things that we have going on that the Lord is answering our prayer as far as outreach goes. Well, if you've been following our study of the book of Acts, you know that uh, we began chapter 2 last week, and we got through about the first four words, and the day of Pentecost had come. And so we focused on the importance of Pentecost. It had finally come. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord explained why that day was so significant and that He was sending His Spirit And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my, what? Witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The reason the Holy Spirit came, the primary reason that he came, was to empower us and to energize us to do exactly what we've been doing this last week and what we're going to be doing in Belize, and what we're going to be doing at at Circus Week. So the Holy Spirit came then primarily to move us out of the church into your realm of witness. My pastor used to say, you're six feet, wherever you are, that you're living and you're speaking in a way that is representing Christ in every single way. The difference in Peter was astounding. We'll look at this as we go through the book. It was astounding. Remember the way he was before. He was the one that denied Christ three times, right? And all the apostles and all the teaching, they still don't quite get it. They're still a little bit in the dark. And they're all cowering behind walls. They're all afraid. They're all scared until the Holy Spirit comes. And all of that changes. Peter turned from a coward to be as bold and fearless as a lion. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Later on, Peter wrote this. He says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Huh. Suffering means blessing. It means we're doing something. It means we're standing for something. It means that we're light in a dark world. We're standing out. We're not just neutral. We're being seen. We're being heard. We're being noticed. And so he makes a suggestion here that we could possibly be suffering for righteousness. By the way, that does not happen when we compromise. A lot of suffering we can't get rid of. Suffering for righteousness, we can. All we have to do is compromise. That's not what the Lord would have us do. And then he goes on to say, but do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone 
who ask you to give an account for the hope or the confidence that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Peter knew here something that we know and we experience as believers, we tend to fear their intimidation. I believe the main reason that Christians don't speak up, that shrink back from conversations, that are fearful to speak boldly about Christ, is that they're withdrawing because they're fearful. They're intimidated. I don't think most of us would uh, believe that we're going to be beaten to death or punched or anything, although that is going on more today than it ever has. But I think we're fearful of being maybe being made to look stupid or not smart or not have the answers or embarrassed. And so Peter knows here that we're intimidated and we're fearful of giving the gospel. By the way, this context, they were suffering severe persecution And friends, it is coming. And Acts is going to help us prepare for whatever God has for us. So how do we overcome being intimidated? We sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We will not evangelize if Christ is not set apart, if He's not a priority in our life. We won't set Him apart. We won't evangelize. We're going to withdraw. We're going to be timid. Jesus, here is the priority of Peter's life. And guess what happens when we make Peter or Jesus the priority of our life? We will always be what? Ready. You see, you don't become ready overnight. It's the ongoing passion of Jesus as we accumulate truth and we accumulate conviction. We accumulate boldness. The longer we're in Scripture, the more sure we are. I've experienced that over the years. I'm sure you have too. It's probably come out of my preaching, I imagine. The key to overcoming fear and intimidation is being well prepared. To be equipped makes us bold and courageous as lions. We're going to begin that preparation today. We've invited our good friend, Aaron Krause, to help us prepare in sharing our faith. And I've asked him to give us some real practical things today about maybe how to start conversations or how to handle objections. Because I do believe that if we set apart Christ in our hearts, if we make Him a priority, and we're well-equipped, we're well-equipped with doctrine, we're well-equipped, able to handle objections, then I believe that we're going to be bold. And I believe that we're, gonna, it's, we're not going to be able to stop from saying what we need to say. Following this, I'm going to mention again, it's been mentioned two or three times today, evangelism training next Saturday. This is your opportunity. If you're indifferent, you're not really interested, if you're fearful, if you're scared, Join us. A few hours on Saturday could make the huge difference in your spiritual walk and in your ability to witness. So without any further ado, we're going to have Aaron Krause come up and give us some wisdom. Help us to evangelize, brother. All right? Come on up. Thank you so much, Pastor Jim. Well, good morning. The good news about this morning is I actually remembered to start my timer uh, compared to last time, that's one of the reasons why I blinked and gave a 
joke that went over like a pregnant pole vaulter. So I decided not to do that this time. Um, Happy Father's Day to you all. My family is not here. Even they've had enough of my preaching. But um, that said, um, if you're a father, I do want to encourage you in passing. Uh, The Bible says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so um, the best ability is availability. Um, My encouragement to you as a father, don't worry about being like everyone else and doing everything right per se. Be who God wants you to be and let God make you into the person of Christ, into the image of Christ that he's already working in you. All right? Um, Because I want to encourage you, um, you can't make your children love God. All you can do is glorify God with your life and let him do what only he can do. And so I'm going to encourage you with that. If that's not enough in your pre-millennial, you could uh, listen to Cats in the Cradle as a devotional later. Um, And if you're millennial, perhaps you can uh, castle made in sand. All right. Um, So without wasting any more time, um, I want to encourage you this morning. A lot of this is going to be some pointers, some encouragement, some very practical tips. I'm going to be quoting scripture uh, for the sake of time, because I have a lot to say, a little time to say it. And if you think I didn't do justice to a point, I encourage you to come on Saturday when I have more time to go into more detail. And so first of all, I want to start off um, piggybacking off of Isaiah 6. And by the way, I want to say in passing, that was awesome. I really enjoyed singing that song and those scriptures in regards to the holiness of God, that just resonated with me. What a worshipful time. In fact, I want to take a moment to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to have a right view of you this morning, that we would set you apart as holy in our hearts, and that we would fear you, knowing that you love us, you know our frame, you know that we are dust. And we ask God that these tools, these tips, these um, motivators that will help us to be bold and clear and effective with the gospel, that we would utilize them in our lives. Perhaps we have unsaved fathers in our lives. May we use some of these principles today as we seek to honor our Heavenly Father. Lord, use me for your glory this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first of all, I just want to remind you on a couple points. One, uh, we evangelize, and so you're going to want to write fast. Uh, we evangelize because he is worthy, therefore it is worth it. We evangelize because he is worthy, therefore it is worth it. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Until he falls off the throne, we still have our marching orders. We evangelize because he is worthy, and therefore it is worth it. If you're doing it, if you try to share the gospel simply to get people saved, you're going to find out very quickly you are pretty much powerless. You can't save yourself, keep yourself saved, and you cannot keep your family safe. That is in the hands of God. I want to encourage you with that. Number two, I know I'm dealing with some character qualities. We're going to get into some more of the practical things very soon. But these are foundational. Be a disciple who makes a disciple. Be a disciple who makes a disciple. Walk and talk. Matthew 28, 18 through 21. 
uh, where Jesus says, um, all, all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and earth. Um, therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and uh, teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, to the ground, I'm sorry, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, so here's something to encourage you with. You already have the right to go and tell. It has been given to you by Christ. The right to share the gospel has already been earned. You've already been given your marching orders. And so in order for you to be effective in evangelism, you've got to be an effective disciple. You need to submit to Christ and let him live his life through you as you're seeking to pour into others, right? The things that God has entrusted to you, you need to entrust uh, to teach other, uh, teach faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You need to be able to pour into others. Second Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2. You need to be able to say like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Therefore, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So if you want to be effective in evangelism, you need to be a disciple who makes disciples. You need to be somebody that somebody would actually want to follow. Not because you have something to offer in and of yourself, but because the only thing you're offering is Christ. You're one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Number three, evangelism is something we get to do, not merely what we have to do. Evangelism is something we get to do, not merely something we have to do. Until you have that understanding, you're going to find evangelism very difficult. In fact, I want to mention in passing 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 9 19 through 23. Those of you concerned that I'm speaking too fast and you can't keep up with writing, the good news is this is recorded. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, he says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being uh, myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without law, uh, without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And also you can read on your own time 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. Evangelism isn't something that we do um, just merely out of duty, it's something that we can't help but want to tell others about. So, for example, think of it this way. Uh, like a ketchup packet, you step on the ketchup packet, what's going to spill out? A bunch of ketchup, right? We should be so filled with Jesus' juice, we can't help but tell others about him, and we're spilling it all over the place. 
That's why the Bible says the love of Christ constrains, compels us to persuade men. And so we need to have our heart right if we're going to get our message right. Um, and number four, Jesus makes us into fisher, uh, fishers of men as we follow him. Jesus makes us into fishers of men as we follow him. Matthew 4, 19, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. So Jesus, if, you're, if he's your Lord and Savior, he's already making you into a fisher of men. If you find yourself not fishing, then there's something wrong with the following. Okay, now let's start getting into the nitty gritty, all right? Number five, eternal life is about who you know, not where you go. Eternal life is about who you know, not where you go. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is an intimate relationship with God. So if you're going to be effective in evangelism, you've got to understand a couple things. One, the conversation is not about you. It's about God. The conversation is not about them. It's about God. You're introducing them to a person, not merely a place. Jesus isn't a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm or a back to be scratched so that hopefully they can get to heaven and escape the flames. It's about a relationship with God that starts the moment you believe the gospel. So we're introducing them to a person, not merely a place. We're not offering them a friend with benefits. We're offering them a relationship that is a commitment that starts the moment you believe in the gospel. You get what you fish for. If you're trying to get people to heaven and escape hell, then of course they're not going to want to read their Bible or pray. I already did that prayer, right? If you make it all about this one and done, and it's not a relationship. And by the way, we have a tendency to do that in our evangelism, right? We treat it like it's a project, like it's a performance. Here, let me go through all of this, and we're like performing for them. But it really should just flow out of our relationship with God, where we're talking about someone we actually know, and we want them to know him as well. So that's a big deal. Eternal life is not about where you or who you know, um, sorry, eternal life is about who you know, but not where you go. Number six, the good news about Jesus and what he did for you. First Corinthians 15, verses one through eight. Now I make known to you the gospel uh, which I received and which you, in which you receive and which you stand. And um, if you believe this gospel, unless you believe it in vain, you're saved. And in verses three and four, he says, for I delivered unto you as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And the scriptures go on to talk about the different people that saw him alive from the dead, including over 500 brethren at one time. So what is the good news? The good message we're offering people. It's the person, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's about Jesus. We're pointing them to a person. So it's important to know the gospel. So if you haven't memorized in your own life, I would encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. This will help you. Now, number seven. If we are going to... Make sure people understand this good news. 
What are the essential truths they must embrace for themselves in order to truly believe this good news, right? There's essentially five points, probably not the five points you thought I was going to say. I'm just kidding. Bad joke. But number one, God is holy. All right. You already saw several passages, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, or 1 through 6. Um, you got 1 Peter 1, 16. You've got um, Revelation 4, 8, Revelation 15, 3 and 4. A lot of different passages you can use. Um, but what does it mean? It means this. God is infinitely pure and infinitely um, uh, set apart in all his ways from anything that is common, evil, or unclean. God is good. He's holy. Now, some of y'all are concerned. I said that real fast. All right. Now, I learned from last time, I'm not putting anything up on the screen because I don't know how to do a PowerPoint, even though I've been doing this for years. All right. So just for record, go to makingmessengers.com. You got the five points right there. All right. Now, anyways, God is holy. He's set apart. He's pure. See, we're introducing them to a person. They need to understand who this person is. He can't be trifled with. They need to understand that God is holy. 1 Samuel 2, 2, indeed, there's no rock like our God. Uh, there's none holy like the Lord, none besides you. God is holy. They need to understand that. A good question you can ask them is, how do you compare to God? How do you compare to God? That's a good question to ask. Number two, we are sinful, this means we miss the mark of being holy like God. We fall short like Kevin Hart or Gary Coleman or Muggsy Bogues. We don't measure up to who God is, right? The Bible says that we break his law and fall short of his glory. Romans 3.23, um, Ecclesiastes 7.20, 1 John 3.4. I've quoted some of those. Um, indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. All right, those of you concerned, I'm not using the Bible. All right, God is holy and we are sinful. By the way, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. When you share the gospel, they need to understand it's not about the things they've done per se, it's about their very nature that offends God. Even though they were created in God's image and they have value and worth, they are tainted with sin. So they have nothing to offer God to put themselves in a right standing with him. See, they need to understand it. So number one, God is holy. Number two, we are sinful. Number three, we owe death for our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. All right? That's no good. That's no bueno. In other words, because God is holy and because we are sinful, we're already separated from him right now. We are dead in our sins, alienated from God, without God, without hope, um, and separated from the promises of Christ. And if we die separated from God, we will spend forever separated from God in a real place called the lake of fire, which is the second death. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Revelation 21, 8. So our goose is cooked. We're just not in the fire yet. And so it's like this. God is holy. We are sinful, and we are separated from him right now. And one day, we will be punished forever in a real place called the lake of fire, a place of torment, a place of pain. But if you make it only about the future, 
which is important. You do need to talk about eternity. Some of them may not understand. They're already disconnected from God. God's wrath is already hanging on them. They've got to turn to the truth. We'll get to that in a moment. So number one, God is holy. Number two, we are sinful. Number three, we owe death for our sin. Number four, Christ punishment for our sin. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life, never sinned, not one time. Shed his blood as he died on the cross for our sins, died as our substitute, was buried in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. So he took what was causing our death and placed it upon himself. He was uh, delivered over for our transgressions, but raised for our justification. Romans 4.25. Um, 1 Peter 3.18 is a good verse you can use as well. Uh, 1 Peter 2.24 you can use. Another passage you can use is 1 John 3.5. That's a good passage as well. I personally like 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he lived a righteous life for us, but when he was nailed to the cross, God the Father punished God the Son as if he was us. He willingly died in our place. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates, shows his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we wanted nothing to do with God, God wanted everything to do with us. So God is holy. We are sinful. We owe death for our sin. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. And point number five, we must repent and believe. We must turn from whatever is keeping us from trusting in Jesus alone. That what he did was enough for God to accept us forever. John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3, 16 through 18, great passage. Romans 10, 9 and 10, you probably already know these verses. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, there's a lot of different verses you can use, okay? I like to summarize it this way, okay? God is holy, we are sinful, and his righteous anger is hanging over our heads on one day to drop like a guillotine, unless you believe it was already poured out on Jesus, and Jesus took away God's anger, so all that's left for you is God's love. But if you don't believe you're still in this predicament. You're still in this pickle. And I like to ask the question, which one are you? What about you? Which one are you? And I want to hear where they stand because when they leave the conversation, I want them to know this isn't a game. I'm not just, you know, here to entertain them. They need to understand they got to deal with God when they leave. All right. All right. Let's move on. All right. So my original numbering, uh, number eight, we can't save them, only Jesus can. John 6, 44, Romans 10, 17, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. All right, so God must draw them. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them, right? God's got to do the work in their hearts. We can't. So here's some more practical, specific tips. Number nine, pray and obey. Pray before you talk to them. Pray while you're talking to them. Pray with them at the end and continue to pray with them after the conversation. Pray for them after the conversation. You're expecting God to do what only he can in their hearts. You're not at their mercy. You're at God's mercy to do what only he can do. So pray. Ask him. Expect him to do what only he can do. Ask God to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pray. Right? What did Paul say over in Romans 9 when he was thinking of his Jewish brethren? And I realize these are eschatological passages in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but I would like to reference this in passing. Romans 9, 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience 
testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Romans 10, verse 1, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. It's good and right, good and acceptable to God who uh, desires all men to be saved for you to be praying for their salvation. Pray that God turns the lights on when no one's home. All right. The scriptures say they need to be born again. So pray and obey. You remember Jonah? Right. I've been reading Jonah quite a bit lately and it's really been blowing my mind. This man took off running from God because he did not want to go proclaim God's message to a people because he knew that if they repented, God would relent. Maybe one of the reasons why you're lockjawed when it comes to the gospel is because you really don't want God to forgive the person you're aiming to share the gospel with. Ouch, I know. I ain't write it. It's just in the book, okay? So I want to encourage you with that. So pray and obey. Pray and obey. Number 10. Use the word, not just your wits. Use the word, not just your wits, right? It's the word of God, which is able to make you wise unto salvation, right? Remember those scriptures that you were taught as a child, right? The scriptures make it abundantly clear that all scripture is God-breathed or pro- and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, rebuke, re- contr- uh, correction, and instruction, uh, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished, right? Uh, ready uh, for every good work. God's word is where the power is at. Use the Bible when you share the gospel, right? Open your Bible and let them see it for themselves. Why? Why should they believe you more than their grandma? Why should they believe you more than that weird looking guy on YouTube, right? Why should they take your word for it? you got to go to the scriptures. That's where the power is at. So open the Bible, read the verse, and explain the verse to them. Ask them a question. See if they understand what you're communicating. Right? If you're just monologuing, they're going to have a hard time keeping up with you. Right? you got to engage them as a person. That's the hard part, right? Some of us, we're struggling with just the message itself. All right, fine. Go ahead. Just give them the message over and over until you get that down. Once you got that down, then start engaging people even more. All right? Start where you're at and make progress over time, all right? Use the Bible. Every word, uh, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. 2 Peter 1, 15 through 21. Now, I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty because some of y'all are like, okay, I wanted some practical tips. What about objections to the faith? All right, so you thought I was asleep, but I stayed awake. I was listening, all right? Number 11, what if they didn't, uh, what if, I can't even read my own handwriting. What if they're in denial about the Bible? <laughs> what if they're in denial about the Bible? All right, I was not a rapper in my former life. Those of you concerned, okay? I pretend. Okay, so what if they're in denial about the Bible? Let's say they some, say something like, well, you're just trusting a book. It's been mistranslated and, you know, uh, they've taken stuff out of the Bible. You hear this all the time, right? Um, you're, just, you're just walking by blind faith, all right? Now, let me give you a little secret about most of the objections you're going to come across. Most of the time, 
People do not want an answer to their objection. Most of the time, they don't really have an honest question that they really need answered before they will come to Christ. Most of the time, they're just using their one-liners that has scared the last six Christians away from actually continuing to talk to them. And for some of them, it's like a cosmic security blanket to hold behind this one objection that no one seems to answer. All right? One thing I found over the years, whether it's friend, family, or enemies, most people do not want answers to their questions. That said, that doesn't mean you be a jerk. Well, I ain't telling you nothing. Now, that's not helpful. All right? You meet them where they're at. You engage them with dignity and respect. Do not forget that every person you interact with was created in God's image. Treat them with respect. Treat them with dignity and leave room for the wrath of God. You and I are not their judge. By the way, that should free you up from feeling like you have to perform as you answer their objection. But... For practical purposes, I have a few one-liners in the back uh, pocket that helps the conversation keep going. So they say, well, the Bible's been mistranslated, blah, blah, blah. blah. All right, so I will uh, point out to them in 2 Peter verses one, uh, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. He says that, look, um, for when we made known to you, uh, sorry, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on, I'm just going to summarize for the sake of time. He goes on, he talks about having the prophetic word being made more sure. And then he goes on, he's saying, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, I might have blended a couple there. I understand what I did there. But what I point out to them is a couple things. One, the people who wrote the scriptures were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Two, they didn't just sit down and say, hey, man, this would be a great story to write. No, it says it didn't come from their will. It came from God's mouth. It came from his spirit, carrying them along to write down exactly what he wanted. And so the Bible is true. The Bible came from God, not because I say it comes from God. The Bible itself claims that. And the Bible substantiates itself. Now, that's a big statement, what I just said there, right? So then I'll go from there and I bring it down a little more practical level. I'll ask them, well, do you believe George Washington was president? And depending on uh, what neighborhood you're in, determines how they might answer that. But usually they'll say, yeah. I say, okay, how do you know that? Where did you get that information? They'll say, well, this is what I was taught. It's been documented. Oh, did they have computers back then? The people that uh, you taught you, did they see him? Did you see him? Where'd you get this information, right? All of a sudden, you're honing in on the double standard they place upon the word of God. And you help them to begin to see, they judge the scriptures from a standard they don't even judge other documents by. And you can call them out on their hypocrisy in a kind and gentle way. What I find most of the time, they admit, yeah, you've got a good point there. Um, another, ver- uh, another concept is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. A uh, familiar passage for those of you who ever study apologetics. And I would encourage you, if you have not read, um, consider reading, if you're a heavy reader, consider reading uh, The Ultimate Proof of Creation by Dr. Jason Lyle. It's an older book, but it's a good book. Older as in like, I don't know, 10 years ago. Anyways, um, 
Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, and this is basically the uh, emphasis of his book. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or, uh, you, or you will also be like him. And then it says, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. And so basically the tactic there is simply, um, you don't, they, they try to set the ground on which you have to argue the, your point. Well, what you do is you say, well, actually, I'm not going to argue on these points. This is what the reality is. We'll argue from here. But just for the sake of argument, we'll look at this. All right. So what does this look like, practically speaking? Uh, perhaps they say something like, you walk by blind faith. You believe in a God you can't see. I believe in science, right? Or something like that. Okay. And uh, you're concerned about their salvation and stuff. So in that context, um, what do I do in that context? One, I will say, well, the Bible makes sense of science. And I will use an example. The Bible says that God upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. I will use other scriptures, John 1, 3, yada, yada. And I will explain that God created us in his image. So since everything operates in an orderly fashion because God upholds all things by the word of his power, I would expect the universe to operate in an orderly fashion. And since God created us in his image, I would expect to be able to make distinctions and be able to prove in technology. But if the Bible is not true, so now you're going to answer him as his folly deserves, let's pretend the Bible is not true and completely made up. And everything is randomly changing by chance processes over millions of years. You have no basis to assume things are going to operate in an orderly fashion if everything is truly randomly changing. Where do you get this idea that you can continue to um, improve in technology and say that things are going to keep operating in a certain way so you can keep repeating the test? You have no basis for that, right? Uh, You're walking by blind faith. Um, So I might hit them with that a little bit. um, But I like to go to Romans 1. Verses 18 to 25. So I'll give you an example. All right. Uh, About a week ago. Yeah. Man, my days are blending together. A week ago, I was in Detroit. I uh, preached at Common Grounds Church. And then I walked downtown and did some canvassing, talking to people about Jesus. Didn't know that it was Pride Fest that weekend. And so uh, to my surprise, there were a lot of families with young children walking around waving the pride flag. Um, on pretty much every block I went. It was quite, uh, you know, looks like a Skittles parade out there. But as I was going out, talking to people, handing out tracts, I happened to upon a gentleman, I believe his name was Eric or Chris. I don't remember now. I've talked to a lot of people since then. But uh, he was working for uh, a phone company standing out there. Apparently, he gets approached a lot and gets approached by his family quite a bit. And so as I was um, sharing the gospel with him, he gave me the line, you know, this is a bunch of trans- mistranslated things have been taken out. And I said, look, man, Jesus didn't speak English. All right. The apostles didn't speak. English. I try to cut to the chase. Right. Let's just be real. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. All right. Let's be real. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. And um, the Bible was not originally written in English. So they want to, a lot of them are basing their faith based on, like, for example, the King James Version. And they'll do pot shots at that all day long. So I'll just quickly shut that conversation down real fast. Emphasize it's about the original languages. And then 
They'll say, well, you know, Jesus, you know, wasn't white and you white people, to, you know, depending on your context, that kind of thing. And so I'll cut to the chase. I'll talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. I'll talk about the fact that the uh, first white guy was uh, Italian in Acts 10. You know, that's something else to consider. Anyway, so I'll try to debunk some of those things in passing. Might go talk about the Tower of Babel, things like that. But in his instance, he, what I eventually did was I say, and I, I encourage you to try this. Let's pretend the Bible's not true for a moment. How do you determine what's true? How do you yourself determine what's true? And you'll get different answers, right? Typically, you'll hear them say something like, well, um, I believe in the scientific method. This is what um, Eric said. And I said to Eric, I said, okay, I just, just a question. Um, can you do the scientific method on the scientific method? He goes, well, well, that's a bit of an enigma. Why? You have to use your five senses, right, in order to employ the scientific method. The scientific method in and of itself is what? It's immaterial. It's an idea. It's, it's logic, right? You can only use your senses for so much. I'll take them a step further. I said, you know, you, you, you realize that you have other things that you believe that you can't substantiate based on just that being your truth. But let's go further. Ultimately, you have different scientists that disagree with one another. So how do you determine what's true? Well, you gather the evidence based on your understanding and you come to your own conclusion. At the end of the day, every person you meet out there, they have set themselves up as their own standard of truth. And that's what you need them to see. And you've got to help them to understand they're too young, too inexperienced, and there's a whole lot of history in their past of humanity for them to be trusted with all these cosmic truths and come to their own understanding based on their own little experience. I like to help them to see that, you know, you've probably changed your mind five times in, in your life. How do you know two years from now you're not going to believe everything I believe? You know, you, you don't, right? And so I want them to see that they're walking on shaky ground. Um, another thing I like to do to um, provoke thought in Romans 1, 18 through 25, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And he goes on, for the sake of time, he talks about they rejected God, made their own idols, and then in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the cre creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what I explained to them is this. According to the Bible, everybody on the face of the planet knows for a fact God is real, but they're suppressing that truth and living in denial. And when you suppress the truth, all you got left with to work with is a lie. You're like a ch we're like children on a playground playing make-believe, but we're doing it with our lives. And the problem is you're still living in God's world. And you can only live in God's world as a square for so long before you get your corners knocked off. And so the idea is... They're still stuck like Chuck. When they walk across the street, they still look both ways. And I want to pin them down on that, right? Because they want to escape, well, to each his own, but I'm like, you don't live like that, right? You want to bring it home where they have to really think about these things. Another way I like to in, in, engage them to have them think further, 
I talk about how the fact, I tie everything that I say to the gospel, all right? Everything goes right back to the gospel. And I'll tie in this. I'll say, the Bible says you and I come into this world born as sinners, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And I'll explain to them, look, the Bible says you come into this world wanting to go your own way, do your own thing. Here's a question. If the Bible is completely made up, why is it that no matter what you believe, no matter your age or ethnicity or what you think you are or what generation you grew up in, whatever, everybody on the face of the planet violates their own standard of right and wrong? Where did that come from? See, you want to provoke their thinking, right? And so I'm trying to give them just little one-liners here and there that will cause them to doubt their own worldview. But I don't spend a whole lot of time on that. And it all depends on the person I'm talking to. So be careful with pigeonholing peop- uh, somebody into a corner and just jamming them up. That's not going to be very helpful. All right. All that's going to do is make them respond in pride. All right. Uh, number 12. Walk by faith, not by presumption. Walk by faith, not by presumption. Second Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Assume that when you go and talk to them, God is already at work in their heart. Don't go up to them, oh, they're a Mormon, so I'm going to school them on all about Mormonism. Don't buy into the lie that somehow you have to know every religion, every answer to every question before you even open your mouth to talk to somebody about Jesus. You are not God. God knows what's going on in their hearts and lives long before you even approach them. Trust him to do what only he can through you. As you go and talk to them, it's like a scavenger hunt. You'll find out who God's working on real quick. They'll let you know, all right? You let them uh, let you know. You walk by faith, not by presumption. Oh, he's big and mean. He ain't going to want to talk to me. Don't do that. That's not, you're wasting your time doing that. Trust God, not yourself. Number 13, be courteous. Be courteous. Don't be jerkyish. <laughs> See what I did there? All right. Don't be, uh, be courteous. Don't be jerkyish. All right. Second Timothy uh, chapter two. This is a big deal. Second Timothy chapter two. He says over here in second Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse 24. I'll quickly read this if I can uh, find it in this Bible that I normally do not use. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse. Uh, actually, we'll start in uh, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So look, here's the deal. God's goodness, his kindness leads us to repentance. When you are correcting them, when you are explaining to them, don't talk arrogantly to them. Don't be defensive. Don't be insecure in your faith. You know, if I was up here trying to defend the fact that I'm married, even though my family's not here, you'd be like, something's not right, right? So many times that's how we act when we share the gospel, right? Be kind, respectful. Meet them where they're at. Realize they're confounded. They don't know their right hand from their left. Listen, we're going to be ministering during circus week, and it's not the only time you're going to find a bearded lady. This is really what's going on in this world right now. 
I mean, I was just uh, over at the water festival in Three Rivers, Michigan, and saw some of the similar things. Talking to a gentleman, he said, well, I'm a pagan. Now, what do you respond to that? Oh, yeah, well, you, you know what? We should burn you right now, right at the stake. You know, that's not, that's not helpful, all right? And um, you could get into a conversation, well, you're not being honest. You're not being all these different things. No, you meet them where they're at, and you help them, and you guide them along gently through the scriptures. Help them to understand the biblical truths. Be courteous. Uh, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness, Proverbs 16, 21. Now, here's the moment you've all been waiting for. Number 14, investigate with W and H. Investigate with W and H. Ask W and H questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says that the plans of a man are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. You don't know what's going on in their heart, so ask W and H questions. Instead of saying, Do you go to he- are you going to heaven? Do you believe in Jesus? Um, are you a Christian? Don't ask yes or no questions. You'll be manipulating them. And we do that with kids all the time. Get away from that and ask different questions, such as, what kind of relationship with God would you say you have? See, you're assuming they know that God is real, and you're asking them to give an account to that. What would it take to be accepted by God? What would it take to be accepted by God? I like to ask the question, hey, you know what? What if I came up to you and I said, look, man, I got five seconds. I'm about to kill over right now. What do I got to do to make sure God's going to accept me? Let them explain the gospel to you. If they can't, you already know where they're coming from then, right? So meet them where they're at. Ask these W and H questions. Uh, Let's see here. I'm out with some friends talking to people about God. What kind of relationship with God would you say you have? What would it take to have a relationship with God? If we owe death for our sin, what can we do to change that? How good do we have to be in order to be accepted by God? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do so that God would accept us? Um, what, is it, what is eternal life? Um, the, uh, what would it take for God to abandon you? Let's say they made a profession of faith. What would it take for God to abandon you? These are different conversation starters you can use, okay, uh, depending on the context, all right? Um, you could use something going on in the news. Hey, you know, man, this has been crazy out here. You think it's always been like this? Like, was there something that maybe changed in the beginning? Or has everything always been chaotic? What do you think about that? Right? As I was, um, I don't remember who I was talking to now. I was talking to somebody in the last week. And um, they were just talking about how they believed in evolution and science and all these different things. And, oh, the different, there's so many different religions. And I said, hey, how do you think they came about? Do you think humans uh, just came into existence in different pockets of the globe? And they all had their different understandings of what religion would be. And then that's how it all uh, perpetuated. Or do you think there was humans that came to existence in one location and had one original understanding of religion, and then that got changed over time? What do you think I tied that into? Right? Right in the Bible. You'd be surprised how quickly they'll they'll flip and they'll be more than willing to listen to you. All right. Uh, number 15, use clarity and integrity. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12. Use clarity and integrity. Don't manipulate them, 
but be clear. Be very clear when you talk to them. All right? It's very important. If you're going up to them trying to put on a performance, they're going to smell it from a mile away. Uh, Number 16, with precision, lead toward a decision. Like Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Him to that point, where are you at with this? Um, number 17, I'm trying to be timely here, so I'm wrapping up very quickly. Uh, use two ears and only one mouth. James 1, 19 and 20, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, and Proverbs 10, 19. Listen, don't just dominate the conversation. Ask questions so you can apply the gospel specifically to their situation. Number 18, understand that there's a misunderstanding. Assume they have no clue what you mean when you say regeneration, redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, and all the other stuff that they're like, what's going on out here? You know, you need to make sure that if you use Bible terms, you explain those terms. And if they use Bible terms, assume they have no clue what they mean. Ask them to break it down for you. Because if they can't, you're going to find a lot of people raised in church and have no clue what it means to actually be saved. And so you got to break those barriers down. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame to him. Proverbs 18, 13. Uh, number 19, stay focused, not fearful. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of love, uh, power, and sound mind. 2 Timothy 1, 7. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 10 and verse 17. Here's the deal. You're going to feel fearful. There's times you're going to feel lustful. There's going to be times you feel nervous. You're going to feel discouraged. You're going to feel hungry. What do you do in those situations? What are you you doing? If you're at work and you're not allowed to leave work, you'll lose your job. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. What are you going to do? You're going to leave your job? Go eat? What are you going to do? No, you're going to keep working, right? You're going to stay focused on what you're supposed to be doing. The same thing is true when you're afraid of what they may say or think about you, right? Again, like I mentioned before, whatever they think about you is not as bad as what is actually true of you. And Christ already died for you. And lastly, number 20, be you and lovingly speak the truth. Be you and lovingly speak the truth. God made you unique. He gave you hookups and hangups and all kinds of good stuff and all kinds of weird stuff. Be that to the glory of God. God is making you into the image of Christ. Be the best you that you can be. But speak the truth in love. Um, As uh, Johnny Mac mentioned recently, um, your heart should be broken as you talk about the judgment of God. You shouldn't be like, turn or burn, forsake or bake. I can't wait for your goose to be cooked. That's not helpful. All right. Speak the truth, but do it in love. People can hear it in your voice, see it in your eyes and in your demeanor. So I gave you a whole lot of information. And a whole, uh, very little amount of time. But that's a, a sneak peek into some of the details that we will get into on Saturday. And I have a whole link on, um, in the training that has a whole bunch of lists of questions, how you can start a conversation, even more than what I gave you this morning. A whole bunch of other things that, hey, look, you can study the rest of the year. But at the end of the day, if you don't do anything with it, it's not going to benefit you or anyone else. And so with that in mind, I would like to close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good, you are kind, and you are patient. Lord, you were so patient in the days of Noah. Lord, you are so patient even now. You're patient with your people. 
Um, you're long-suffering toward us. You want us to come to you by faith. And Lord, we're surrounded at a time where people um, ruin their way and their hearts rage against you. We ask God that you would give us a heart of compassion for the lost, whether they ever get saved or not, that we would see their plight of what it means to be bound by sin, that we would see the glory of your son and the love that you have, and that that would cause us to meet people where they're at and take them as far as they're willing to go with you and expect nothing in return because we genuinely love them Just like you are kind and ungrateful to evil men, Lord, help us to love and do good and expect nothing in return. We ask, God, that you would raise us up, a group of soldiers here that would be bold for you regularly, that would come alongside and encourage other believers, come and see what the Lord has done and is doing. We ask, God, that you would bring many people to saving faith as a result of our evangelistic endeavors in the weeks to come, that you would raise up an army of people that would be diligent and deliberate in following up with new believers, that they would be making disciples who make disciples. We thank you for this day. We ask God that your son uh, would be glorified as a result of your work in our hearts and our response to it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.